Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc. be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience. My name is Maurice Selby, and you're listening to the one and only Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM New York, the voice of Harlem, and the Health in Harlem podcast featured on Spotify, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a very, very, very special, I mean, every show that we do is is special, but this one is like ultra special. Um, mainly because of what is happening right now with this pandemic that we're dealing with. And um, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to discuss more about the vaccines. This is going to be our third uh, COVID-19 vaccine update. And we have joining us, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Adam Aponte. He is the chief medical officer uh, of the East Harlem Council for Human Services Incorporated and also the Borican Neighborhood Health Center. And also we have joining us Dr. Dial Hewlett. He is the medical director in the Division of the Disease Control and a deputy to the Commissioner of Health at the Westchester County Department of Health. And yeah, we're going to talk about uh, this vaccine and mainly just get into the hesitancy and mistrust um, amongst minorities when it comes to this vaccine. And really our goal is just to, to put some good information out there for you all to digest and also clear up some myths and misconceptions uh, regarding the vaccine. So with that said, welcome to the to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you guys for joining us. And so we are just going to literally jump right in. It's so clutch that we talk about this. So I think a real good starting point is, is what these vaccines are and how how do they work? How do they factor into us addressing this crisis with COVID? Yeah, I'm not sure who you want to start, but this is Dr. Ponte. And first, let, let me just say, uh, it's so so good to be on the show with you, uh, Dr. Selby. I'm going to call you Dr. Selby because I've always known you as Maurice because you've been my student. And That's what's up. One of our <laughs> programs. And it, it, we were talking earlier before we aired how refreshing it is to see you come full circle. So congratulations to you on your success. And thank you for inviting me. Um, and so, you know, this has been a very interesting uh, process of getting this vaccine out. I think there's a lot of information out there, a lot of misinformation regarding the vaccine. And what we've started to do, at least in our health center, for our patients and for our staff, quite frankly, because our staff come from the community, is to ensure that they understood exactly what this vaccine is and what it's not. Um, and Understandably so, a lot of folks have expressed concerns about how did this thing come to the market so fast? What are they injecting into me? Um, what is this going to do to me? Just a bunch of questions that I think 
uh, we need to do a better job of answering. So hopefully with it over the course of the next you know, 45 minutes or so that we have, we'll be able to address exactly what this is as far as the vaccine um, and how they were developed, how they came to market so quickly compared to what we're used to um, and what these vaccines are actually doing in your body. Some side effects associated with it, because I think we have to be, you know, keep it 100, right, Maurice? We got to yes. keep it 100 yes. on this show, right? So, I'm with you on that. Um, so, you know, making sure that everyone has that information uh, available to them and then make an educated decision, not not a decision based on misinformation, but an educated decision on uh, what this vaccine is. Uh, and then finally, how do you get the vaccine if you're interested in getting it? So, so I'll, I'll let my colleague, Dr. Hewlett, jump in here. And then, you know, Maurice, we can get more granular in terms of what the vaccine is and is not. Sure. Thank, thank you very much, Dr. Aponte and Dr. Selby. It's a pleasure to be here. I'll just make a couple of general comments. I know that people in the audience are familiar with vaccines, but they may not be familiar with how important vaccines are to our society. Years ago, there was a disease called smallpox, and smallpox back in the 1700s and 1800s was wiping out 10 or 20 percent of the populations of certain towns in Europe. So they were faced with a problem then that's quite similar to what we're being faced with today. And they didn't have a cure for the smallpox, but there was a doctor by the name of Dr. Edward Jenner who actually invented the smallpox vaccine, and he was able to administer it, and it saved countless lives. And in fact, it's viewed as one of the great achievements in society. And if we move forward, we know that there are a number of diseases for which we don't have cures, but we actually have vaccines. A terrible disease called polio, which called, caused paralysis in children years ago. We never got a cure for polio, but we got a vaccine. And so now you don't see polio. Same was true with measles. We got a great vaccine for measles. Unfortunately, people stopped giving it to their children and we started to see measles again. And so fast forward to today, we have two excellent vaccines that are very effective for uh, preventing COVID. And we also have several other candidates that are sort of about to be launched. And so I think that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And I think that we want to share some of the reliable, accurate information about these vaccines so that people will feel comfortable accepting the vaccines, or if they decide not to accept the vaccines, they'll be doing so armed with uh, accurate uh, scientific information. Yeah. You know, one thing that I, I always put out there, right? Um, I have been between my training in, in medical school um, throughout residency and now as an attending physician, uh, I have yet to see a case of polio. Actually, we had one individual actually um, had poliomyelitis, but she was at that time probably in her 80s. Um, and I saw this patient as a medical student. So this is a non-existent, I mean, in a way, right? Something that is not apparent, as Dr. Hewlett said, um, we just don't see polio anymore um, because of vaccinations. Things like smallpox, for the most part, is eradicated. The only place you'll find that is in, you know, these, these super secure um, biology labs um, where, where research is conducted uh, using these agents, but you don't see this in the population anymore. And it's primarily because uh, of vaccines, uh, ladies and gentlemen. When we talk about this illness that we're dealing with, you know, we don't unfortunately have a cure. We have some, you've learned a lot in a year, I would say. And, you know, taking care of patients in the ER, we've definitely come a long way in taking care of individuals with this illness, but there's by no means a cure for this. Along with social distancing, wearing masks, being, you know, cognizant of our hand hygiene, 
Um, I think a vaccine is something that we need to strongly consider. I agree with you both um, that we need to strongly consider this in terms of how we're dealing with this crisis, not only individually, but in society. Right. So why don't we take a minute to talk about the two vaccines that are on the market currently. We know there's a couple others in the pipeline, the AstraZeneca, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Uh, but, but right now, as of today, the two vaccines that are available to us in the U.S. are the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine. These two vaccines are, are very similar in terms of how they work. And it's actually a newish technology. I wouldn't say new. Uh, I guess in medicine, 10 years may be new. But this technology of these, what we call mRNA, uh, which is, stands for messenger RNA. RNA, if you remember your biology classes out there, folks, right? Uh, you have your DNA that creates RNA. The RNA is actually the, the, the signal that helps your cells to produce these proteins, right? Proteins are, are, are central in our bodies and and they will make up with these antibodies that you've heard of, right? So the things that fight off these infections. And so what these scientists have been able to do through this technology is to really advance the, the production of these types of vaccines. And what this vaccine does essentially is they've looked at the coronavirus, and, it, and your listeners must be sick of seeing the coronavirus, right? It's on, you know, it's out there. Everyone sees it. The little, they call it corona because it has these sort of crown proteins on its surface. And those proteins are very distinct. Um, and, and we can identify what those proteins are made of. Once the sequence, meaning once we knew what this protein was made of, the researchers were quickly able to find out how do we encourage our bodies to produce a similar protein so that it recognizes it as foreign. I'm doing air quotes here, foreign. <laughs> and you can't see it on the radio. Um, and then your body starts to attack this protein that it doesn't see as itself, right? Anything that's not yourself, your body attacks. Just like every infection you get, and, and Dr. Hewlett is our infectious disease specialist, so uh, I don't wanna go too far into his field, but anything that enters your body, a virus, a bacteria, even, organs from other people, right? You guys have heard mm. organ rejection. Your body sees it as foreign. Your body knows who you are and, and, and anything that it sees that it's not you, it attacks it immediately. Uh, and that's essentially what this vaccine does. It sends a message to your cells in your body to produce this protein. The protein is then presented to the body and it starts to recognize it as foreign and develop these antibodies. Uh, Dr. Hewlett, anything you want to add to that? Because uh, again, we want to make sure folks understand this well. I, I think you've covered it very well, Dr. Aponte. And as we think about this, think about the fact that there have been over 400,000, maybe four, close to 450,000 people who have died as a result of this infection. We think about the fact that this has taken a disproportionate toll. A big, the biggest toll has been in our communities, in our African-American and in our Latino communities uh, here in New York, as well as in other big cities across the country. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's a fact that here in the United States, we only have 4% of the world's population, but we have 25% of the cases and 20% of the deaths. And so we really have to take drastic steps in order to turn this whole thing around. And so we now have the opportunity to do that with these vaccines that have come out. As Dr. Aponte said already, we have the mRNA vaccines, one from Pfizer, one from Moderna. There are other vaccines that are going to be coming down the pike, uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, and then there's going to be the AstraZeneca vaccine. And so 
the hope is that everyone is going to have the opportunity to receive these vaccines. The other important thing, which I cannot overemphasize, but I have to think about it because I'm a father and a grandfather, and I know many on the on the call are probably parents or um, uncles, aunts. You have to understand that our children cannot yet have these vaccines because these vaccines are not yet approved for use in children. So what that means is that with the communicable disease, you have to protect others from getting this disease. And one way for you to do that is to take the vaccine. So if you have children in your household, other people in your household, you can pass that communicable disease on to others. The thing about other diseases, like if you're hypertensive and you decide you're not going to take your medication and you have a heart attack, well, that's kind of on you. That's your choice. With communicable diseases like COVID, when you make a decision that you're not going to take a vaccine and then you get the infection and you spread it to other people, then that that has an impact to all the other people in your environment. So I think as you make your decision, try to realize that this is not just about you. It's also about everybody in our communities. Let me share a few other things about the vaccine and what it is and what is not, because I think, mm-hmm. you know, we, we want to really get, um, you know, there's, this is not a chip. No one's implanting a chip into people. There's a lot of misconceptions about that. I'm not even sure where that rumor started. Uh, you are not being injected with the virus with these mRNA vaccines, which is very different than perhaps some of the vaccines we've talked about, like the polio vaccine, the measles, rubella vaccines. Mm-hmm. This vaccine, it, there is no virus in it. So it is impossible. Let me repeat that. It is impossible to get COVID from this vaccine. Uh, And so I think that's really important for your listeners to understand and be aware of. Um, And then I think the other thing about this vaccine that that I've heard, at least in my work that I'm doing, is the concern with how how is it that the government has been able or the government, again, air quotes here because it wasn't the government, right? It's private industry that creates vaccines. Mm -hmm. But how was it that these private industries were able to get this vaccine so quickly to the market. And I think it, it, it's, it's worth us spending a little bit of time in discussing the, the nuances behind this vaccine. Uh, first of all, in medicine, we advance technology every single day. The stuff that Dr. Selby, Dr. Hewlett, and myself learned in medical school is almost antiquated by the time we graduate, quite frankly. That's how quickly medicine is changing as we learn about it. So we should not be surprised at all that we are now developing pharmaceuticals and therapeutics in a much quicker way because we have better technology. So we should expect that, quite frankly, in my opinion. Uh, And so that's one of the things that I think we're very unique about the timing of this vaccine. Uh, The other thing about this vaccine in, in particular is that the FDA has also changed its process the FDA is a, a, you know, a very established organization that sometimes moves pretty slowly and is slow to change. And what this, fact, this, this pandemic has done is forced the FDA to rethink how they do the assessment of clinical trials in this country without cutting corners. Um, and traditionally what's done with clinical trials is that they have to go through multiple phases, multiple uh, parts of experimentation before the FDA will even look at it. Mm-hmm. Right. It's and so what the FDA has started doing is something that we call concurrent review, meaning as the research is going on, they're starting to look at the research in real time and giving feedback to the researchers that okay, you guys are on the right track, this looks good, keep moving forward. This you know versus waiting till the very very end of everything and then saying oh you know what you missed a step 
three steps ago, or you missed something five steps ago, and then they have to go back to square one. So that's another thing that has changed, and rightly so, because again, um, I, I think these these organizations can become a little bureaucratic at times, and we want to be able to, you know, expedite that without cutting corners, without compromising safety. Very, very important to understand that. And then my last point, and I'll let others jump in here, is typically when a company is developing any pharmaceutical therapeutic that has to be approved by the FDA. They wait until the last approval is made before they start to manufacture it in mass. What these companies did, because they had somewhat of a safety net in that the government was helping to fund some of these uh, production, they took a chance. They spent millions of dollars early on and to start to produce the vaccine in anticipation of approval so that the minute they, they were approved, they can go immediately to market. And what typically happens in this case is that if I gave you FDA approval today, you would then go back to your company and take about four or five, six months to produce enough to put to market. So all those three things that I've described are why this vaccine has been able to come to market sooner. Yes. And, and I'll comment also uh, on what to, to piggyback on to what Dr. Aponte has said. Uh, this was a unique situation. It was obviously an emergency, a pandemic. One of the things that was done at the very beginning was there was some collaboration among all of the manufacturers as well as with the regulatory agencies like the FDA. And what they did was they harmonized the protocols that were used to, to do the research. And by harmonize, that means that they made all of them, all of the companies followed exactly the same protocol or procedure. And that way, they were able to have just one committee that was made up of objective people from the various universities and colleges to evaluate all of this data. They call them a data safety monitoring board. And they went through all of this data and it was a lot easier for them because all of the protocols were exactly the same. And the FDA worked very closely with all of these groups. And they also worked with the Centers for Disease Control and a group called the uh, Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. And everyone agreed that there were not shortcuts taken and that these vaccine products were effective, 95% effective, as was already said, and that they were safe, that the majority of the side effects that occurred were relatively minor. And I think it's also important for people like myself to point out to you that I'm not just telling you to take something that I haven't taken. I took the vaccine when I was eligible uh, because I work in a hospital and I urged people in my family when they became eligible that they should take it. And I also urge other people that I work with. And unfortunately, I wasn't as successful at the hospital where I work because only uh, 40% of the nurses and other people at the hospital where I work in the Bronx accepted the vaccine, but we're going to still work on them and try to get wow. them to take the, uh, to take the vaccine. Wow. Only 40%? 40% of the nurses that and is... ancillary staff. Now, most of the physicians accepted the vaccine. That was, of course, you know, understandable. But this, I think, when we look at our nursing staff, we have excellent nurses. They are very professional. They do a wonderful job. But many of them have a mistrust of our system. Uh, I would say that the overwhelming majority of the nurses and ancillary staff at our hospital are from 
the community in the Bronx uh, where the hospital was located. And so they are a reflection of that. And that's the work that we have to do to make sure that they have accurate information uh, about this vaccine, because I think they're missing out on an opportunity because, as you know, the Bronx was one of the hardest hit areas uh, as far as this pandemic was concerned. And so that's I think that's the thing that we really have to hone in on, because, you know, we look at sort of where we are with this pandemic, as you you stated, Dr. Hewlett, you know, 400,000 deaths. Besides deaths, we've definitely seen the complications that can arise from COVID. So even if you survive, you know, there are individuals with uh, kidney failure. There are individuals with myocarditis or inflammation of the heart. There are individuals with liver problems. There are individuals with this long hauler syndrome and, and brain fog that can last. We're not talking weeks. We're talking months. You know, I have colleagues that are still suffering from this. And so when we look at all of that and, and think people are very aware of these complications, but still this hesitancy, what do you guys think is sort of the, and I know we know Tuskegee as far as the African-American community, definitely one of the things that's brought up. Uh, each and every time. But is there anything else that you think factors into this hesitancy? We, we have to build trust. Uh, I think there's a lot of distrust. I think if we look back at some of the things that have happened during the previous four years, uh, there certainly is a legitimate reason uh, for people not to trust many of the leaders in government. And so I think we have to do all that we can to identify who the people are are who are going to be the trusted messengers for our communities. So we as doctors, we try to serve as trusted messengers, but it's important for us to also work with other community leaders because there are other leaders in the community who are trusted by people who live in the community. So people who are members of the clergy, for example, uh, some of the people who are uh, teachers and other people who are looked up to and who are the role models. We have to basically make sure that we're collaborating with them. We also are working with here at the health department, we're hoping that we'll be able to have discussions with some of our professional uh, sports teams, because we know that many of our young people admire our sports uh, leaders. And we're hoping that we can get some of them to actually act as spokespersons to talk about the vaccine and encourage people to take these uh, vaccines. Yeah, I, I, I think the messenger is always important in this, and I think that's what you're describing, Dr. Hewlett. Um, and and when when we lead these messages, I found, you know, here in East Harlem in particular, that when they, after a session with me, after talking to me, after witnessing me, because I also got my vaccine, I actually put it on, on LinkedIn, I posted a video, the whole bit, because I wanted to encourage people to do this, there was more trust. Um, and also allowing people to ask whatever questions they have about this to, you know, to make sure that they have all the information that they uh, need to make a decision, an important decision as to getting this vaccine. And sound bites from news media, sound bites from folks on the TV that they don't know, in communities like ours, and, and we know the history. I mean, you talk about Tuskegee, but there's so many other. So many others. Yep. So many others. That it would take us an hour just to have a show on all the different experimentations that have occurred within, you know, black and brown communities over, you know, the, the hundreds of years of, you know, that medicine has been in existence in this country. So there's a reason for that, right? Uh, and then, of course, you know, the, the reality that people live with, right? The health disparities that they're living with every single day that we know about that exist uh, and continue to exist uh, because 
of what we do and don't do in these communities, all those things, I think, come together uh, to create this hesitancy. And it's, 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 you know, we had some of that as well, Dr. Hewlett, where we had some of my own staff who did not want to get vaccine, and it took a lot of convincing, convincing to get them to do so. But, you know, imagine that nurse that you talked about that didn't want to get it. What's she saying to the patient? And when mm-hmm. the patient, when she's about to administer the vaccine and the patient says, did you get it? And she says no, or he says no, because nurse, right? Then uh, how's that patient going to feel? Yes. Well, that, that's powerful. You know, one of the bright spots of my uh, visits, because when I go to the hospital, I'm always asking people. I had gone around with our infection control practitioner and with our uh, medical uh, chief medical officer. And uh, one of the nurses' aides actually came up to me uh, a couple of, actually, this was a couple of weeks ago. And she said, you know, I wasn't going to take the vaccine, but after you spoke, I decided um, that I would take it. And uh, after she took it, she went back up to her unit and she spoke with all the people on her unit. And she said some of the nurses and other people on the unit who had previously said they weren't going to take it, they decided to take it. And I think this is where we talk about the trusted messenger the trusted messenger, they weren't going to take it because I told them, but they were going to take it because their colleague uh, told them uh, Mm -hmm. and convinced them. And I think that this is one of the things that we have to look at too. I think that we have to look at making people ambassadors, if you will. So once someone decides they're going to take it, make sure that they take ownership, that they understand that it's not just about them taking it, but they have to also convince other people of the, of the good things that go along with uh, taking this vaccine. To your point earlier, Dr. Hewlett, right, you also talked about uh, when you take it, what are you doing, right? So we, we did a little PSA uh, in terms of why I took the vaccine, right? Because it wasn't just for me, it's for other people. So my mother, who has cancer, is getting chemotherapy. I took the vaccine for her because I want to be able to see her and I want to be able right. to be around her. And so mm. think, this, and this is very different than other things, as you described before. Yes. You don't yes. take your hypertension medication, it affects you and only you. But now taking the vaccine, you're actually not only affecting you, but others around you and people you love. Uh, so that's another thing to consider on, on that. And just one thing to add, as far as going back to the trusted messengers, right? Because one thing I want um, you know, a listening audience out there to understand and, and spread this, if you will, right? It is not just us functioning as talking heads, you know, medical professionals saying that we've taken this thing because I've taken it. As far as uh, I was just listening to, so I'm a, I'm a huge, this is recent, right? I'm a Sirius XM fan. I'm going to throw it out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, listening to Urban View and Karen Hunter, I was surprised because she actually expressed, you know, concerns, as we said, legitimate concerns and hesitancy about um, the COVID-19 vaccines. And yesterday, this is just yesterday, Karen Hunter on her show uh, said that she is is going to roll up her sleeve out there. And this was really after a conversation. I'm not sure where he's from, but Dr. Ian Smith, um, mm-hmm. I think he was on the show. I, I cut into the program after the fact, right? After this uh, interview, interview she had had, but when presented with the data, and this is what we've been talking about when we look at that 95% effectiveness. And we talked about this with Dr. Um, Stephen Thomas, ladies and gentlemen, in a prior episode, right? That 95% effectiveness, that 0.6% of uh, serious, potential serious um, adverse effects of the vaccine, 0.6, right? Less than 1% uh, chance of having a, a serious side effect to this, which we've mostly seen, I think, as these severe allergic reactions. When she li- listened to the data, to her, it made sense, right? This is a person that had the same skepticism, the same questions. 
And so I'm just putting it out there and check check her out because she made a case like, look, you know, when presented with the data and just look at 400,000 deaths, plus all of the other fallout from a possible COVID-19 infection, she made the decision for herself that this is something that she would. Um, so there's other trusted messengers out there, right? This is not just us uh, from the standpoint of, of medicine sort of talking about this. There are other individuals um, in our communities that that see this as a viable option in controlling this pandemic. So, so Maurice, maybe, maybe we should talk a little bit more uh, about side effects. Uh, because mm-hmm. I, we want, again, we want to be fully transparent here because there are some associated side effects with this vaccine that we have seen. Uh, the most common one by far is, is pain at the site of injection. I think we've all gotten a shot. I think the most painful shot I've ever gotten up to this point was the tetanus shot. Uh, and not that that's tremendously painful, but this one... It, it, it has a punch. It has a little punch to it. I would say it's like getting really punched hard in the arm. You're definitely going to be a little sore the next day, and understandably so, right? We're taking a needle, we're injecting it into your muscle, and we're injecting fluid into that muscle. So by virtue of that alone, your body's going to react and have a reaction. So that's the most common side effect to it. Uh, and then there's been reports of these severe allergic reactions. It's very, very rare, as as uh, Maurice indicated earlier. Um, it's, it's only those people who have severe anaphylactic reactions, we call them. You know who you are because you walk around with EpiPens. And so those individuals, we, and it's only been a small percentage, by the way, of yeah. those individuals mm-hmm. on top of that, yeah. who have had allergic reactions to this. Uh, as we talked about earlier, what's being injected in your body, right? So it's this mRNA protein. And then it's wrapped in what we call a little envelope, basically a fat cell. It's like a little fat cell. Um, and so this all degrades or it gets absorbed into your body afterwards and doesn't linger. Other side effects have been, you know, some people have complained of mild headaches some soreness and feeling a little fatigued. And people think that, oh, wow, I'm getting COVID. But when you're feeling fatigued, and Dr. Hewlett, you can speak to this better than I can, I'm sure, the body is building an immune response. Yes. It's kicking into high gear. Absolutely. We refer to a lot of this as reactogenicity. That means your reaction, you're actually, it's a good thing that you're having some of these things uh, because it indicates that your body is developing a response. Now, one of the things that you want to put into perspective, yes, we're concerned about allergic reactions, but out of the first 2 million people who received either the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine, there were 23 uh, cases of anaphylaxis. So 23 cases of anaphylaxis out of 2 million doses, and all of those people uh, survived. I think maybe a half dozen of them had to spend time in the uh, emergency room. So that's actually a pretty good uh, a pretty good record when you think about it. I want to also mention a couple of things that Dr. Aponte talked about, and that is a lot of these myths that are out there about this vaccine. A lot of um, young women are concerned about some rumors that were on the internet about infertility. And this was purely a rumor because it was stated that the mRNA in these vaccines would cross-react with a protein that is essential for placental development. And that was proven to be uh, a rumor that is not really the case at all. Uh, And so I think that we have to try to dispel a lot of these rumors uh, that are out there. And most certainly, when you start talking about um, taking the vaccine and having a motivation, some people have said, well, you know, uh, the mortality from COVID is 2%. So that means I have a 98% chance of living after COVID. And that is true. But as Dr. Selby mentioned, 
about 10% of people will have long-term side effects. These can be debilitating. The older you are, the more likely you you are to have those uh, lingering effects and debilitation. And in fact, uh, Dr. Fauci and the group down at the National Institutes of Health, they are very concerned about long-term disability. Hmm. And long-term disability in the long run may turn out to be almost as devastating as all of the deaths that we have seen already. Because think about it. You have people who are the breadwinners of the family. You have people who are dependent upon who are the parents. And what happens if they become disabled? And so we are trying to prevent not only death, but we're trying to prevent prevent disability uh, as well. And, and just to add, just to close out on side effects, there's two shots to this vaccine. Um, and as Dr. Hewlett mentioned, the reactogenicity is a little greater after the second shot. So m- many people after the second vaccine have a little bit more reaction to it in the sense that they feel a little bit more out of it. And again, this is just your body building an immune response uh, to the vaccine. And so it's actually not a bad thing from us from a scientific perspective. You may not feel great about it, but scientifically, we know that means that the vaccine is working and it's developing the antibodies and, and doing the things it should be doing in your body. So that, that sort of, you know, is the, the typical side effects that we've seen. And they're very similar with Pfizer and Moderna from what I understand. Yes, that's correct. And I think it's also important for us to mention some other concerns that people have that they have expressed. One of the things that I've heard concerns about, and we're, we're actually running a immunization clinic um, in our health department um, six days a week now. A number of young women will say, well, what if I want to become pregnant? Should uh, I take the vaccine? Is there a contraindication? And we say you can certainly take the vaccine. Obviously, having discussions with your obstetrician is worthwhile. But the American College of Obstetricians, which is the large body that uh, talks about uh, various guidelines for women, they have gone on record as saying that if you have a woman who is at a, in a high-risk situation for developing COVID, for example, a woman who is working as a nurse or a doctor or maybe working in a high-risk kind of an occupation uh, where COVID might be more likely, they say, by all means, she should take the vaccine. And this is whether she is planning to become pregnant or even if she is pregnant uh, at the time. And although we don't have specific data to uh, follow, this is what the experts have actually uh, advised. Um, I want to thank you for bringing that up, actually, because a lot of my friends who um, want to get pregnant in the future, they're all hesitant to sign up for the vaccine purely for this reason. They understand the science and they understand that it's a great um, thing that has developed very quickly and that it's safe. But what they're worried about is like what will happen in the future after they take it and they try to have kids. So I do appreciate you bringing that up because that is actually something I was going to ask you about. It's not just pregnant women who are concerned about these long-term effects of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously the vaccine is new, so we can't say what long-term effects, but, you know, we can surmise or we can sort of predict based upon what we know about the vaccine and what we are giving folks that, you know, it's very unlikely to have any long-term effects in any individual, quite frankly. And these symptoms, these side effects that I described to you and uh, we described today uh, are usually very short-lived, no more than 28 to, 24 to 48 hours at most I've seen. Um, and so uh, I think that the benefit outweighs the risk associated. 
Yeah, I can I can attest to to the experience too. You know, I definitely felt both shots. <laughs> um, so yeah, the local tissue um, discomfort right where the inject or at the injection site, but also, I mean, I will tell you, I had chills. Um, I had a little bit of night sweats. I definitely felt achy. My usual three to five mile run that I do, you know, five days that did not happen mm-hmm. after um, both shots. And thank God I was off from work. Um, you know, but I, I definitely felt uh, a lot of these adverse effects. But um, as Dr. Ponte said, they were actually very short lived. And this was no more than 36 hours. I think I probably felt a little fatigued after that initial uh, 24 hours. I felt a little fatigued. But, you know, other than that, I was uh, and, and now I'm back to my sort of normal routines. Um, and so it was very short lived. And that's the thing. Like there will be right. Um adverse effects. There will be people that have that discomfort. That's one thing that we know for sure is that this is seen in younger individuals that are vaccinated. One of the sort of theories behind behind that is that um, younger people have probably more robust uh, immune systems and thus they respond more to the actual vaccine. Um, So I felt it. And some of Mm -hmm. my colleagues who are a little older than me did not feel it, right? They didn't feel as much. And so Kind of makes sense. But also acknowledging, right, there are going to be individuals. It's a fact. There are going to be individuals that have um, things such as severe allergic reactions or anaphylaxis. That is going to happen. That is going to happen, um, not just with vaccines, but any medication that is taken. You know, unfortunately, that is the case. But again, that number is very, very small. Very, very small. As Dr. Hewlett said, uh, what, 29 cases out of the first 2 million that have been vaccinated. Um, and that trend has been 23. Got it. So even less than that, right? Uh, less than 30. And that's been um, uh, what we are 27 million, I think, that have been um, at least gotten their first shot up to this point. And that, that number is still um, is not very high. Let me put a question out there that I hear from folks. And I'm, I'm going to kick this question to Dr. Hulick since he's our ID specialist, um, because this is a question that many have come up again. Along the you know the areas of vaccine development and you know why all of a sudden could they develop these vaccines and they haven't developed a vaccine like say for HIV? Mm-hmm. Can can you speak to that, Doctor Hewlett? Why a vaccine, sure. uh, vaccine I, HIV hasn't been developed, but there is one so quick for COVID? I can, and the um, journey for an HIV vaccine has been a long journey, and there have been a lots of false starts and stops. Uh, I can say specifically with this vaccine. The work on this vaccine did not just start last January. It started back in 2003 when we had the first SARS-1, as we call it. And that particular um, virus uh, killed uh, several thousand people in uh, Asia and also in Canada and in the United States. And that also was a coronavirus. There are, very, there are a lot of similarities between that one and between, uh, between uh, covid Now, there was another virus that was very similar uh, called MERS, which is Middle Eastern uh, Respiratory Syndrome. Very similar, again, a coronavirus. And so the work has been going since 2003. In January of last year, they actually had the complete what we call genetic sequence. That is, they knew every gene uh, that was present on this virus. And so if you know every gene that is present in a virus, you can then identify uh, where you can actually take parts of this and use those parts to develop a vaccine. And so 
over that one year period of time or less than that, they were able to effectively develop a vaccine. Now, why can't, why couldn't we do it for HIV? I think part of the reason was that we didn't have a lot of the technology then uh, that we have now. Uh, that was part of it. Another part of it is that there were effective treatments for HIV. And with the development of what they called highly active re- antiretrovirals, people were very well controlled uh, with uh, their disease. They were living uh, long lives, and you didn't know even that somebody had HIV. And so what, it, what then happened was that there was a, I guess you would say, a loss of interest, a loss of support. Uh, for vaccine research. And so not that many people were working on it. So certainly if HIV had been something similar to this, there probably would have been a lot more interest and a lot more resources poured into it. But as you said at the beginning of this, Dr. Aponte, you said they they poured in really huge amounts of money uh, Mm -hmm. as incentives for the company. And that was never done uh, for the HIV uh, vaccines. And in fact, HIV now is really a disease that's of, of, of poor people, essentially, of people in underdeveloped countries. And uh, that's part of the reason why there's less interest in HIV. Isn't the type of virus that the HIV is compared to the coronavirus also affect your ability to produce a, a vaccine being a retrovirus? Yes, yes. That's another important part. And so just as although we didn't touch on it, there are variants of this virus. And so you've heard of the South African variant, you've heard of the UK variant, uh, you've heard of the Brazil variant, and these variants essentially were the result of mutations uh, where there were substitutions. And this virus is very clever, just like other RNA viruses. Uh, It was very clever. And so as an adaptable kind of a thing, in order to adapt to a different environment, it actually mutated. And by mutating, it made itself more easily transmissible, which is, of course, a very important thing for us. And we're hoping that we can get to a level of herd immunity before we get to the point where the vaccines may be less effective against these uh, these mutant strains. But that's exactly what happened with HIV. Uh, we get, got mutations that changed the susceptibility to the medications uh, that people were receiving. Hmm. So let's move on um, to, right, once a person is past sort of their hesitancy, um, they even decide that they want to roll up their sleeve and and get vaccinated. Where are we right now in terms of distribution? And even in, in some of the challenges that we're seeing, we're already seeing sort of disparities in who's getting the vaccine, um, even different locales where the vaccine is more available or less available. Sort of what... Um, you know, how is it working as far as distribution? And what are you guys seeing on the ground that is happening in maybe, terms of getting maybe I could, vaccine? Maybe I could jump on this, and I'm sure Dr. Aponte mm-hmm. will have a lot to say about this as well. At our health department, we are actually running a mass immunization clinic every day. We are finding that there are challenges because many of the people that we would like to reach are not, not able to use computers. They can't actually uh, get online. And so they're shut out of the uh, appointment-making process uh, totally. That's one of the things. Uh, Another thing is the uh, location of where the vaccines are being given. And so it's very important for us to uh, try to locate sites where people can uh, easily get there. Many of our citizens have challenges as far as transportation. And so we need to have sites located where people can actually get there very easily. 
Uh, so these are some of the things we're trying to get around. But the other big obstacle is supply. Uh, we don't have enough supply to satisfy the demands. And I think that that's going to improve with the approval of some of the newer products that are about to be uh, reviewed and, and hopefully launched. Yeah, so here, here's, and this, this is a particular area that I am um, raise a flag about because, you know, we were talking earlier about trust. Um, and so when we talk about that trust, we know that our patients, particularly in, in communities like the ones I've served in Eastern Central Harlem, um, trust us. And so while these, and, 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 you know, not to say that we, we need a multi-pronged approach to this. And, and for, for patients in our communities in particular, these large hubs, uh, these large locales to get vaccinated sites uh, re represent a challenge for some of the th reasons that Dr. Hewlett uh, talked about. Just navigating to these sites is very, very challenging. You know, if you talk about the little viejita, the little doña, in my neighborhood who lives across the street and she's 80 years old, she's not gonna get on the internet to find a hub and then go stand two or three hours at the Javits Center in New York City to wait for mm -hmm. a vaccine in a very sterile environment where she knows no one. And by the way, no one speaks her language. Uh, what we didn't talk about was all the things that need to happen for you to get this vaccine in terms of registration process, filling out online forms. A form that's only available online, by the way, in the New York City, New York State vaccination form has to be completed before they come in. You got to set up an appointment. Um, you, we as providers, we have to get a certain number of patients in per day because once we tap a vial, we have to use at least those 10 doses, otherwise we'll be wasting the vial. And then there's a monitoring afterwards. So all those things are very complicated to do. And you know, if we don't think about where we distribute these vaccines and not just focusing them on hub distribution, then this disparity that, by the way, I could have predicted it. Dr. Selby, I'm sure you could have predicted it. Dr. Hewlett, I'm sure you could have predicted it because we've been dealing with health disparities all our careers. So it was no news to us when we started hearing that there was a dearth or a lack of vaccinations in certain communities, no surprise. And part of that was because a place like ours, a community health center that's been here for 38 years, by the way, has been diverted, vaccines have been diverted to these hubs. So when we look at these campaigns and we talk about getting vaccine into the arms of patients, we have to make sure that we support community health centers and locations like ours um, that know the patients and that is going to ensure that people in our community come to us. And the hubs, the hubs play a role for certain populations but not for mm -hmm. our populations. Um, and so th that's, that's a major concern of mine. You know, even pharmacies, you know, getting a flu shot at a pharmacy is one thing, but getting a COVID vaccine is very different because mm -hmm. if you do it right, the patient needs to get there. You should have information on the patient. They have the evidence that they're eligible for the vaccine. They have, they have to complete this New York State vaccination form. They need to get the vaccine. We have to ask a couple of screening questions, by the way. And if we're doing it right, that patient should be sitting there with us for about 15 minutes to assure that there's no reactions, as we talked about earlier. Uh, and then they have to come back four weeks later. And I don't see a pharmacy being able to do that in a way that really is embracing of a patient. And some of our patients need hand-holding. Yes. And that's what we do very well. And, and one of the other things which I think we have to think about is uh, what we call pop-up sites. And we can develop what we call pop-up sites by working with community leaders, working with the clergy. And instead of going through websites and going through computer links, we can actually have the community leaders compile lists 
of people who are wish to have the vaccine who are eligible. And we can then contact these individuals in traditional ways by phone and say that we're going to have a site set up for a weekend uh, at such and such an area which is accessible. Maybe it's a church, maybe it's a gymnasium, maybe it's a community center uh, to facilitate it. And we here at the health department, these are the kinds of things that we're talking about. And I'm hoping that we can uh, start to work with some of our community leaders and members of the clergy to uh, to do these things. I, I like that idea better than these hubs because uh, I our health center is across the street from a place called Taino Towers. Taino Towers has over 2,000 residents in that facility. If I did a pop-up site right across the street inside of Taino Towers, imagine how many people I can vaccinate. The problem is I don't have enough vaccine on hand to do that. Mm. And those are the kinds of efforts that I think and that's why I say it has to be multi-pronged. It's, just, it's not this one-size-fits-all, major hub, city field, Javits Center, Yankee Stadium, everyone will come to us. That's not going to work. And that's going to continue to perpetuate the disparity of vaccines, which is also going to perpetuate the disparity of COVID illnesses in our communities because we won't be, have curbed that by administering enough vaccine. So um, those types of uh, of, of, of um events are going to be a little bit more feasible for some of our patients versus, again, these large mega centers that, you know, people are going to spend hours, by the way, online. Yeah. And so one thing, you know, one thing that we're about on this on this program, Unhealth in Harlem, is really just empowerment of our listening audience, um, individuals and also communities. And so with that said, are there strategies or tips that you have for our listeners out there where we can do some work on the ground up? to sort of meet you all uh, halfway in the different health systems in terms of getting these pop-ups started or, um, you know, working to advocate and get legislation passed or find ways to sort of um, do things such as these pop-up centers or really bringing this vaccine to individuals in their homes, in their communities? Yes, I think we can. Uh, One of the strategies or tactics that I'm advocating is to work with community leaders and also to work with members of, say, the faith-based institutions, uh, clergy, other people who uh, have influence in uh, in large groups of people. And we can actually ask them to start to put together lists of people who they know are interested in receiving the vaccine and who they could more or less guarantee will show up if we set up a pop-up site, because we first have to have a commitment from whichever group it is that they have people who are number one eligible and number two are willing to take the vaccine and they can make a commitment to show up. And if we have listings of these individuals, we can then actually go through a process of making appointments for them because we uh, cannot afford to set up pop-up sites and then only have maybe 40 or 50 people show up because as was mentioned, the vaccine uh, has to be used and within a certain period of time. Uh, but I think that we can do this with the help of uh, many of our community leaders and some of the members of the clergy. In addition, here in Westchester, we actually have interest from uh, the various mayors. They're actually interested in helping to set these pop-up sites up with us, and they've actually helped us identify some sites. And so I think we can actually move through in that way. And I think that the public also, that every person uh, can actually sort of voice their uh, desire to have an accessible site uh, in their community. Uh, So these are some of the things I think that we can do so that we can uh, have more equitable uh, distribution of the vaccine. 
Yeah, and, and I agree with that. I, you know, we always talk about the community raising your voice, right? And the community does need to raise a voice. You need to advocate. We know the squeaky wheel gets the oil. But 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 I, I also think that, you know, we know that certain communities inherently are going to be disproportionately affected by this. Histor- history tells us this over and over again. So I'm very frustrated, quite frankly, when people says, oh, we're seeing disparities in vaccine distribution. Duh. Like, that's no surprise. We should have anticipated that, and yes. we should be we should be more proactive instead of reactive. And that's my frustration with the distribution uh, here in New York State. You know, I, I applauded our governor when he took the lead, the national lead during the COVID pandemic, and really was a sense of reason. Um, but I, I think there were some missteps at the state level and the city level, and I'm just going to be candid about it in terms of how they rolled out this vaccine distribution for these communities and. They didn't engage community health centers such as ours. They could have given them uh, some ideas about our experiences and what we are capable of doing it. And not only doing, but give us the resources to do so, right? Because what we're not talking about here is the fact that the fact that I'm giving COVID vaccine is not a substitute for something else I'm doing. I'm still doing primary care. I'm still doing dental services. I'm still doing all the other services that I have here. And with that same staff, I am now also vaccinating people for COVID vaccine with no additional support from the city or state government or federal government, right? And so that's the kind of stuff that really frustrates me about things like this because you didn't have to wait to see this happen. I I think we also are coming. And so, um, yes, raise your voice, community, talk to your elected officials, insist that we get the vaccine that we deserve, promote your community health centers. I'm lending my voice to it. Thanks to Dr. Selby, we're putting more information out there now to you all. Um, And hopefully there's an elected official listening to this broadcast and they'll say, hey, you know, and we're not going to call any of you guys out, but you know who you are. Um, So you can call me. You can call me. I'm at the Barinkin Health Center. You know where I am. And I will share with you some of the things I think should happen as far as trying to get this vaccine into our communities and how we can assist in that effort without having to make our patients and our communities have to, you know, raise hell, if you will, uh, to get that vaccine. Sorry about that, but I had to just put that in there. No, you had to because you know what? I think it's it's equally frustrating, you know, sort of for all of us and to watch it and to continue, you know, unfortunately in the next few months and even I would even say years, I'm going to see patients in the emergency department that slipped through the cracks that maybe were um, amenable to receiving a vaccine that did not get it right because of some of the, the barriers that we're talking about now. And so I'm with you, Dr. Ponte, as far as the frustration and, and again, I'm with you in that it starts from the top down, you know, unfortunately. We're talking federal down to, as you said, state and city level. But one thing I want everybody out there to know is that, right, we do have power as people. I think we've proven that multiple times. A lot of the things that we've seen trans- transpire over the last year. Um, and, and so I think there, there are things, and I'm glad that you mentioned it, sort of right in your uh, elected officials and, you know, making a little noise in order to to get the resources that we need and and get this. The other thing I think we have to think of too philosophically is that our lives matter. Uh, and so I think mm-hmm. that this is one of the things, you know, the, the deaths of people, uh, unjust deaths of individuals galvanized our community. And I think that mm-hmm. we actually have to now view this in the same way with the same mm-hmm. vigor uh, because this virus 
has essentially caused undue harm in our community. And the lack of a cohesive federal response has caused the death of many people in our community. And so this is something where I think we have to all get together on. So, so maybe we should share with your listeners, now that we've given you some information and hopefully you feel a little more educated around it, uh, how do you get the vaccine today and who is eligible? I think those are co- a couple of things that are really important, at least in New York, in terms of eligibility. Uh, you know, might we want to share some of the folks who are now eligible so folks understand who they are? So, you know, we've done these phases, phase 1A and 1B. I think everyone knows phase 1A was predominantly healthcare workers, people who have direct care, patient care contact. And the reason for that, obviously, is because we're getting the sick patients coming to us. Right. And so if we're taking care of these six individuals and we're now getting COVID, then you will have no providers to take care of these patients. So I think mm-hmm. it was pretty obvious about that. Not that we want to be first in line, but uh, we got to protect those individuals who are caring for this population in the first place. So it made a lot of sense. And then over time, we have now expanded in New York State, at least, who are eligible in New York City to a certain degree who are eligible. So as of today, the most recent eligibility is for, again, healthcare workers, anyone in the healthcare setting. That includes if you're working as like a home visiting nurse or someone like that, going into people's home, you're eligible. Uh, they have now also made, obviously, everyone over 65 years old eligible for the vaccine. We know that the older you are and you get COVID, uh, the complications can be worse. Although we have seen young people die from COVID, so don't mistake that. But True story. Uh, five and older, generally. Teachers uh, are now eligible. Obviously, they're in contact with children. Children, we know, can be carriers with no symptoms whatsoever. Uh, so it's really important. Uh, and now they first responders, public transit workers in New York are eligible. They've also now added restaurant workers and public-facing grocery stores. And you know what? I'm glad they did that because during, during the pandemic, they were considered essential workers. Right? Yes. And so why are they not essential today? Uh, and so these are the people who allowed us to keep food on our tables during this pandemic. We're going to work every single day to make sure that the shelves are stocked, the food is being delivered, et cetera, et cetera. So again, one of my little pet, uh, you can see it. You can, you can tell that rubbed me a little wrong way. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and also I, they added Uber drivers and Lyft drivers and taxi drivers. Mm, to the list. And I think that's important because a lot of people have second jobs. And uh, it's important for them to understand that uh, they are eligible if that's actually what they're doing. Your public transit workers are the ones that are eligible. So that's the group who's eligible today. That eligibility is going to change, particularly as we get more vaccine available uh, to that. Uh, I'm sure that soon people with multiple chronic illnesses will be eligible and some other criteria. The last population that Dr. Hewlett spoke about earlier is children because this has not been tested in children and tried in children. There's some trials going on now that are starting to uh, see how this works in children. And until we know the efficacy in children, they will, they will be perhaps one of the last to get vaccinated. But, you know, as we talked about earlier, if everyone else is vaccinated, then we develop that sort of herd immunity you guys have, uh, made, uh, we've made mention of before. So that's, that's who gets it. And then how do you get it, right? And so um, community health centers, many community health centers have this available. Several pharmacies are coming up. Of course, we talked about the hubs. And then, you know, New York City has developed a website that you can go to. If you just go to newyorkcity.gov, and uh, you know, put in a search for a vaccine, you'll find different places within the city to get vaccine. I encourage you to all call before you go 
because you can have vaccine this morning and it could be out by this afternoon. And so make sure that you're making phone calls before you go up and show up online for these uh, vaccines to make sure they have them available. And, you know, thankfully with the new administration, uh, there seems to be more aggressive rollout of the vaccine. So we're going to start seeing more and more places, uh, including some of the things that we talked about before, pharmacies, hubs, show up and also provide vaccine availability. Um, so these are the different resources that your listening audience should be thinking about as far as where to get the vaccine. Got it. And so ladies and gentlemen, um, one thing I can promise you is that we will incorporate that in, into our show notes as well. Um, uh, going along with Dr. Aponte, what Dr. Aponte was saying as far as how to get access to this shot, how to, where to find the information to register, um, to make those appointments. Um, we will be including that in our show notes. Real quick, one thing I have to say is that unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Hewlett had to excuse himself as he was working clinically at this time. So something came up, he had to uh, leave us a little bit prematurely, but he did um, express that he was really happy to join us and, and share in this discussion. And with that said, uh, Dr. Aponte, I got to put you back on the spot man, as far as um, as we begin to wrap up. What would you say is the most important thing? If there's anything that anyone has sort of learned from listening to, to this discussion, what is the most important thing that um, individuals should take take home from this conversation, from this yeah, show? It, it's hard to just say one thing, but, you know, first of all, you know, facts matter, right? Real facts matter. This, you know, we, we've just come out of an era of all these sort of fake news and all this sort of, you know, alternative facts. Uh, these, I, I believe in the science. I believe in the science behind this vaccine. And so please make your decisions based upon real facts, not what your neighbor said, they heard from somebody else who heard something else from somebody else. And they, you know, you know, these, the, and don't hang on to these, you know, when we're talking about the, the, the percentage of people who have anaphylactic reactions, 23 out of 2 million, right? That's like less than 100th percent, 100th percent. Right. I mean, that's such a, a small odds there that uh, it's very unlikely. And none of those individuals have died. Um, and then last, you know, don't, don't just think about yourself. Think about your family. Think about your community. Think about the people you love. That It matters. Your decision matters to them. It's not just an individual decision anymore. And I think that's a really important point. Hmm. Yeah, no, I'm with you 1000 percent on that. Um, and I want to I want to thank you, Dr. Ponte, and also um, shout out to Dr. Hewlett. I know you had to go, but we we want to express on behalf of our listeners, um, you know, our appreciation in, in joining us on the program tonight. Also, um, I want to thank my colleagues. So Anastasia, as always, so grateful for you and and what you bring to the table with uh, Health in Harlem. Also, I want to send a shout out to the rest of our team, ladies and gentlemen. Also, we want to shout out. Um, Angela Harden and Tina Dixon at WHDR. They are still holding things down in the studio, making sure the station is running uh, despite what we're dealing with with the pandemic. And so we thank them for their efforts too. And really the rest of the WHDR family, we're still broadcasting. People are still getting their shows out there, good information and stuff um, and good <laughs> listening, right? Um, for, for all of you. So definitely check out WHCR. And ladies and gentlemen, as always, each and every week, this show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas. Harlem, take care of yourself.